the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 13 to the end of that chapter. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. May God bless the hearing of these words this morning. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Now let's pray this morning as we come to these remarkable words in God's Word. Our God and our Father, we do say amen to your word. We do say, come, Lord Jesus, come, even as his coming is described and portrayed in such beautiful and powerful and hopeful words here. Father, as we come to your word this morning, would you use it to encourage us? Would you use it to strengthen us and to empower us and to embolden us? to continue to run the race with endurance, even as we live in this world where it's hard to live, where it's difficult, Father, for every human being because of the groanings of the curse that have fallen upon this world and that are causing it to cry out for redemption and to long to be renewed. But Father, even for Your people, it's, it's more difficult as we try to remain faithful to Your Word as we seek by Your strength to stand against the forces of darkness and all of the ungodliness in this world and all of the schemes and workings of the devil in this world, Father, we encounter opposition and we encounter temptation and we encounter difficulty and trial in a, in a unique way in this world. And we need Your grace to stand firm. And we know that the strength to be able to do that and to be able to continue to run the race with endurance comes from hope. And so, Father, would you keep our eyes fixed on what is to come and on Him who is to come. And would you use these words of Scripture this morning to give us hope in our hearts. Even as we live in this world where if, if our hope is anchored to what's going on around us, there will be no hope. Father, keep us fixed on Christ. Keep us fixed on eternity. Keep us fixed on that day of His coming and on that coming kingdom and everlasting rest that is ours in Him. And flood our hearts with hope. Hope that causes us to grow and thrive in purity and holiness and love for one another and love for this lost world. Hope that keeps us honoring and glorifying You. Hope that keeps us running and standing firm. Father, may the words of my mouth May the meditations of our hearts this morning be pleasing in your sight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Do me a favor this morning. 
as we look here at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, flip over, keep, keep one of the tabs in your Bible marked here in 1 Thessalonians 4. That's where we're going to start. But in a little bit, we're going to refer also to Matthew chapter 24. And so if you want to flip to Matthew 24 real quick, stick another one of the ribbons in your Bible or a, a piece of paper in Matthew 24, and then come back to 1 Thessalonians 4, you'll be ready because we're going to we're going to spend a little bit of time going back and forth between those two chapters this morning. But we'll start here in 1 Thessalonians 4, and we're going to do that on the heels of Resurrection Day last week, where we dove into Paul's, Paul's masterpiece in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he insists in no uncertain terms on the absolute necessity of the resurrection, as we saw last week, right? The resurrection of the dead in general and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in particular. Because as we saw last time, if there is no possibility of dead people being raised, then Christ Himself couldn't have been raised. And if that's true, if it's true that Jesus wasn't in fact bodily, physically raised from the dead, then Paul says the gospel itself is meaningless and powerless and our faith is futile and the entire Bible is a running false testimony and we are left in our sins. And so our only hope, remember, is in this world. And if that's true, that our only hope is in this world that's falling apart where the wheels are off the wagon and it's just hurtling down the hill, then we have no hope. And if that's true, then that makes us as Christians the most pathetic, pitiable lot on the planet, right? You remember all of that from last week. But, Paul proclaimed, with all the power and authority of the Holy Spirit, but in fact, but indeed Jesus Christ has been Raised, And so our hope is not in this world only. Our hope is firmly fixed and securely anchored in the everlasting kingdom of heaven where we will dwell with Jesus Christ, having been raised with Him both soul and body in eternal imperishable immortality forever. That's the hope, right? That's the hope. So on the heels of all of that great resurrection hope that, that we already partake of now because we have been made to be new creations in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And then there is the sense in which we will partake of it in even greater, greater measure later when Jesus returns and raises our bodies to immortality and imperishability. In the wake of everything that we looked at last week, I wanted to follow it all up by soaking up the great words of everlasting hope that Paul proclaims to us here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And so these two sermons go together in order to forge great everlasting hope in us as we continue to pilgrim our way through this world. So one of the questions that I hear Christians asking very, very often, is what happens to Christians who die? Do we go straight to heaven? Is there some intermediate place that we go first? Some, some limbo state that we have to be in for a while? 
we know what's going to happen with our souls, but what's going to happen with our bodies exactly? Will they be resurrected in fact? Will the resurrected body somehow resemble Jesus' resurrected body? When is that going to happen? When is the resurrection of the body going to happen? And when it does, what will those bodies be like? What, what will they look like? Do we get to choose? Do we get to say, well, I was, I was happiest with what I looked like when I was 17, 18, 20, 25? Do we, what's it, what's it going to be like? And those questions, I think, are questions that all of us have asked ourselves at some point because those things are very important to us. And it can be troubling if we don't know the answers to questions like that while we're struggling through this life and feeling all of those groanings and birth pangs that exist in this world that is, that is under the curse of sin. We want to know what happens when we die. We're very interested to know what happens to our loved ones who are dying or who have died. And that interest gets, gets heightened by the fact that we live in a world that has no clue, that is absolutely uncertain about that future. And we live in this world where people are are. are absolutely distressed, therefore, about death because they have no confidence about what comes next. They have zero understanding of what happens when we die, and so they're just guessing. They're just making stuff up. And it's all just a bunch of confirmation bias about what lies ahead after life in this world. They don't have any real objective basis for lasting hope And so the default baseline reaction in our world to the reality of of death is despair and fear. And sometimes that baseline feeling of despair and fear can rub off as we're in this world surrounded by that. It can rub off on us as Christians and affect the way that we feel about death and the way that we react to death. And that is exactly what was happening to the Christians in the city of Thessalonica when Paul wrote this letter to them. They were being influenced by the world and their, their instincts about what lies ahead, what, what lies after death in this world, were being shaped by the world around them. And so they were living in fear and despair instead of hope. And that fear and despair were stalling their growth and their purity and their holiness and their effectiveness for the kingdom while they were in this world. And so Paul wanted to address that and and infuse them with a massive amount of hope. So they were being influenced there in Thessalonica by some incorrect teaching about what happens when we die. Many of the Christians that Paul is writing to in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, many of the Christians there in that city were Jewish people who had converted to faith in Christ from Judaism after Paul had come to Thessalonica and preached the gospel in the synagogue. We saw that in the book of Acts. So they had some biblical understanding already from the Old Testament about the realities of death and even resurrection from the dead. They were Jewish people. They'd studied and they were familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures and so they had some sort of expectation already about the, the, 
the reality and the possibility of the resurrection from the dead. We, we saw some of that last week from the Old Testament scriptures that we dipped into when we were studying 1 Corinthians chapter 15. David speaks in the Old Testament in Psalm 16 about the hope of the resurrection, doesn't he? My heart is glad, he says. My whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells secure even while he's being persecuted and tempted and beat up on and threatened. He's struggling. He's suffering. But he's glad. He's rejoicing. His flesh feels secure. Why? Because you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And yeah, in that context, when he wrote that, he's talking about himself. He knows that physical death isn't the end of the story because God promises to raise the dead. Also, ultimately, he's prophesying of the great resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 53, when Isaiah is prophesying of Jesus, of the suffering servant, he proclaims that Jesus, the suffering servant, will be stricken, he'll be afflicted, he'll be crushed. He'll be given over to death, and yet the Lord will prolong his days. And Jewish people understood correctly that that's a reference to bodily resurrection from the dead. Death is not the last chapter. One of the great Old Testament passages, I think, that foretells the reality of physical bodily resurrection from the dead is in the book of Job. And Job chapter 19. Job, of course, you remember, was suffering in this world, right? Massively in his life on the earth. He was well acquainted with the withering pain of physical distress and and the great sorrow of death because everybody in his family had been wiped out except for his wife. He'd lost everything that was dear to him in this world and yet he was able to have hope. How? Because, here's his words, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the end, at the last, He will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Oh, how it makes my heart faint within me, he says. Isn't that great? As much tragedy as he's experienced, as much loss and physical death that he's known, what makes his heart faint with joy is the great hope that he knew with confident certainty that his Redeemer is the living and life-giving God who will take his stand on the earth at the very end of days. Why does Job know this? How does Job which is one of the earliest books written in the Bible, how does he have some concept of what we know from the New Testament to be true, that the, that the living, enfleshed, incarnate Redeemer Jesus Christ will one day take His stand on this earth and raise us from the dead? Because Job is inspired by the same Holy Spirit that gives us that New Testament truth in its fullness. And so Job says, Even after I die, there is coming a day where in my flesh I will look Him eye to eye. He's not just confident that in his soul he'll see God. He knows that bodily he will live with God forever. Even after physical death. He's confident already at the very beginning 
in the hope of the resurrection of his body in the end of days. So Jewish people, familiar with these Old Testament scriptures, know that hope of resurrection from the dead because the Old Testament speaks loud and clear in a number of different places about that hope. And most of the Christians in Thessalonica were converted Jewish people. They'd grown up reading and studying these scriptures and meditating on them, and they understood. So now they've come to faith in Jesus Christ as their Messiah, but they had been exposed to some misunderstanding and false teaching that was causing confusion for them. And the misunderstanding was this. They, they believed that the fulfillment of the Old Testament expectation of bodily, physical resurrection from the dead was going to happen, but they thought that when it did, it was only going to happen once into one person. And that after that, no more resurrection from the dead. That was their assumption, and they knew that Jesus had been raised from the dead. They were confident of that, but they thought that was it. He's the one, and after them, there won't be any more resurrection, so when their loved ones are dying, they have no idea what's going to come of them. And they thought that they would not experience physical resurrection themselves. And so they had this misunderstanding first. And then on top of that, secondly, there was this specific form of false teaching that was going around that, that claimed that, that Jesus somehow had already returned in a kind of invisible and spiritual sense. And so the only resurrection that they thought they would ever experience is the spiritual resurrection of regeneration and new birth in Christ that they already had. And this false teaching was saying that there is no coming physical resurrection for the saints of God. And then those false teachers would go on to speculate about what the afterlife was going to be like. And usually all they just did was borrow from pagan mythology that, 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 that gives no kind of hope at all. And so their hope was shaken, see? And because their hope was shaken, their growth in holiness was being stalled and thwarted. And their love for one another and this dying world and their zeal to be preaching Christ was, was being constrained. And so the Christians in Thessalonica misunderstanding and being mistaught, they, they were left being hopeless. So here, in this passage at the end of 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul wants to proclaim the truth to them and to us in order to anchor our souls with the hope of the reality of what happens when we die. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. And of course, when we read that verse, and we read it often at funerals, we know that Paul doesn't mean we don't want you to grieve at all in the face of physical death. Death is a painful reality, especially when people who we dearly love die, and we have to continue on in this life apart from them, without them. That loss brings great sorrow. That loss causes grief. And there's nothing wrong with that. The only abnormal thing is when there is none of that. Jesus Himself experienced that, didn't He? He knew the grief of loss and of death. He wept bitterly 
when his dear friend Lazarus died, didn't he? And Jesus wept over Lazarus' death, knowing that he was going to see Lazarus again in the flesh and soon. Right? Because Jesus knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead after only four days in the grave. But still, knowing that, he still wept. He still felt the sorrow when his dear friend died. The compassionate heart of God, incarnate in the Son of God, grieved at the death of his friend. So Paul doesn't mean to suggest at all that death should not grieve us. What he says is, he doesn't say we don't want you to grieve about people who die. Don't feel bad. He says we don't want you to grieve like people who have no hope. So Paul understands not just how difficult and painful life in this world is, he also understands because of that how absolutely important hope is. And that's the emphasis here. It's on that word hope. We don't want you to grieve like people who have no hope. We don't want you to live like people who have no hope. We want you to have hope so that you can live. And even as you grieve those who have died, that you can go on in the strength of Christ. What is hope? Hope, Hebrews 6.19 says, is the anchor of the soul. It's the anchor of the soul. And we live in a stormy sea that tosses us to and fro. And we need a sure anchor for our souls. And it is hope. Biblically, hope doesn't mean what we tend to think it means maybe in our American nomenclature. Hope is a really wimpy, sort of anemic word in English. Hope means, well, I don't have any confidence that something's going to happen, but I sure hope so, right? It's the fourth quarter and, and my team's down 27 points and there's a minute left and I, I guess I hope they're going to win, but clearly the odds are against it. That's not the biblical concept of hope. Biblically, hope is an absolutely confident assurance that the promises of God are absolutely true. And hope is what God gives to us to give stability to our lives because we know by the faith that God gives through the Holy Spirit that our future is going to be what God says it is going to be. That's what hope is. Confidence that we can take God at His word. And that's a massively important aspect of human life, right? It's, it's when people lose hope that they're not confident of what's going to be in their future. That God isn't going to be good and faithful to His promise. It's when they lose hope that life doesn't seem worth living anymore to them, right? But when we have hope, then no matter what's going on in the circumstances of our lives, no matter how grievous those circumstances are, we can keep living and walking and running with endurance and pressing on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ because we have hope. My family walked, uh, what was it, four, four miles and gained... 2,000 feet in elevation in order to get to the top of Nevada Falls this past week. And you're walking and my legs are burning and my heart's pounding. And there was a lot of times along that walk where I'm going, what am I doing? 
I don't want to keep going. I just want to sit down or go back. Because I didn't have any hope until you think about what, what lies at the top. And we've seen pictures of the beauty and the glory of God's creation up there, so we kept pressing on and pressing on, burning legs, aching muscles, gasping for breath. I mean, my kids weren't, but I was because uh, I'm out of shape. And we got up there, and it was so glorious. And it made it all worth it, every single step, every aching muscle, worth it. That was the prize. Think about the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And let it give you hope to keep on running with endurance the race that is set before you. That's what Paul is saying here. Up at the end of of chapter 3, Paul had prayed for the Christians in Thessalonica. In verse 11, he said, Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. You see how he ends this prayer? He, he, he proclaims to them the second coming of Jesus with all His saints. That's the hope. Jesus is coming. Keep running. Keep climbing. Keep striving because Jesus is coming. When everything in this world seems to be falling apart and and in shambles and your body is groaning and aching and it doesn't feel worth living anymore, look ahead past this sin-cursed world to the top of the falls and know that Jesus is coming. And then right after that prayer, at the end of chapter 3, Paul goes on at the beginning of chapter 4 to exhort Christians to live in holiness and moral purity and love as we await for the glorious coming of our Lord. Keep running, keep growing, keep striving. Keep plodding along that trail. And then he tells us how to live in holiness and love all throughout chapter 4. And then he comes to these verses. Verses 13 through 18, where he gives us a glimpse of the hope, where he anchors our souls so that we can keep on striving. Hope is the anchor of the soul, and Paul knows how stormy the waters of life are and how many ways the realities of suffering and affliction and and death can threaten to shake our hope. And he knows that if we're going to live the kinds of lives that he's been teaching us to, holiness and love and effectiveness for the kingdom, lives that please God first, then we have to be increasing in hope. Because increasing in hope will cause an increase in holiness and in love and in lives that are pleasing to God. You remember Jeremiah when all hope seemed to have been lost because the Babylonians had destroyed the beautiful city and it was burning all around him. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The reality is the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. His faithfulness is great. The Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will hope 
not in the stuff around me, but in Him. And keep running and growing and thriving. So here, Paul is teaching us that when it comes to facing the inevitable, the, the universal reality of physical death in this world that, that everything just seems to be aiming towards, this miserable, horrible end that all of us are destined to suffer, we have got to learn to do what Jeremiah did in the darkest hour of his grief and lamentation. We have to learn to call to our minds the realities of God's goodness, of God's love, of God's faithfulness, of God's mercy, of God's promises, of the realities that He's laid up for us in His Word and spoken to us about what does happen after we die so that our grieving will be mingled with great hope. And notice here, that the first thing that Paul does is, is in, in, in teaching us about the biblical realities of physical death for the Christian, the first thing that he does is to refer to those people who have already died physically as those who are asleep. He's speaking euphemistically. He, he's referring to death as sleep because he wants us to understand two very important and and interrelated realities. One that's a present reality and one that's a future reality. And when we understand them, they give us hope as we contemplate the, the painful inevitability of death. He wants us to understand that physical death is not the end of the story for a human being. He wants us to understand that when someone dies, even though their bodies return to the dust here and now, Number one, their spirit, their soul lives on right now in the present. In the presence of God. And he wants us to understand that there is coming a day in the future when the body itself will be gloriously raised from death and freed from decay and corruption, made immortal, made imperishable. So that as whole beings, we can forever be with the Lord. And for a Christian, for a believer in Christ Jesus, right? That's really, really, really good news. A Christian is someone whose life is hidden with Christ in God. We just read it in Colossians 3. So when a Christian dies physically, their body goes to the grave, but their soul lives on and goes to be with God, goes to be with the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, right? It's, your body's... In the grave, but your, your soul is at home where it belongs in the house of the Heavenly Father. That's the present reality of every Christian who has died. Their, their bodies are here, but their souls are at home. And the future reality is that the day is coming when Jesus returns when their bodies will be raised from death, made imperishable, made perfect, made free from every creak and groan even, and reunited with their souls so that both physically and spiritually they will forever be with the Lord. That's a glorious hope. That's the great hope, both present and future, that Paul is revealing here. And the way that he's emphasizing it is by connecting that great reality that being absent from our bodies means being at home with the Lord. And that future 
reality for our bodies being gloriously raised. He connects this great reality to the awesome reality of the resurrection of Jesus. Even as it happened for Him, so must it happen for all who are in Him. That's His argument here. Emphasis on the word must. Look at verse 14. Notice the word for at the beginning. Paul's saying you don't have to grieve like people who have no hope grieve because since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. Paul makes it as clear as day in the most concrete way that he could in the Greek language. It's, it's what's called a first-class conditional statement in Greek. It's a technical term. It means this. Because the first thing is true, the second thing is necessarily true. First-class conditional statement. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Because Jesus died and rose again, in the same manner God must and will bring everyone who is in Christ but who has fallen asleep, who has died, he must and will bring them to everlasting life. And he means physically, physically, bodily, just like Jesus was raised. And because Jesus was raised. That's, that's what we learned last week, right? In 1 Corinthians 15, it's the same thing he's teaching here. The necessary effect of God raising Jesus from the dead is necessarily God subsequently raising everyone who is in Jesus Christ from the dead, bodily, physically. Since you believed that Jesus was raised, the Thessalonians, you believe that. You've never wavered on that, but you've wondered about you. So since you believe that Jesus was raised, you must also believe that in Him, you too will be raised. Even in the face of death, you have this sure and certain hope. You will live again. In your flesh, you will see God. Physical death is not the end of the story. It is not the end of our existence. Which is why Paul uses that word sleep throughout the New Testament to refer to death. It's it's temporary. It's not the end of our loved ones who are believers in Jesus Christ, it's, it's the gateway unto glory. In verse 15, Paul says, believe this, trust this. Why? Because the Lord Himself reveals it. It's not just speculation, it's not just a myth, it's not wishful thinking that desperate people conjure up to give themselves hope. It comes by way of the Word of the Lord. Paul says, look, I'm just, I'm just the messenger telling you what Jesus has already said. Specifically, Paul is declaring what the Lord Jesus Christ has spoken by the power of His infallible Word in Matthew chapter 24. Paul's not giving any new revelation here from God that God had not already given. Paul is simply repeating here, expounding here, the teachings of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And in Matthew 24, if you want to flip over there, Jesus proclaims, keep a finger in 1 Thessalonians 4, because I want to show you the comparison between what Paul says and Jesus says. Jesus is proclaiming that He will return from heaven 
with the blast of a trumpet. And when He does, He will gather believers unto Himself. He will pour out judgment on unbelievers who won't see it coming because they're so distracted by the things of this world. Jesus will come like a thief in the night when they're least suspecting it. And here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul is teaching the exact same thing and even on into chapter 5. So, one finger in 1 Thessalonians 4, another in Matthew 24, so that you can look back and forth between them. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. Here is what the Lord has declared to be true. For the Lord Himself, Paul says, will descend from heaven. This is the second coming. With a cry of command. With the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, Jesus will return from heaven along with the archangel who will shout and blow the trumpet of God. Now, Matthew 24, verses 30 and 31. Jesus Himself says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory, and He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call. Same thing, right? Jesus will come. He will come from heaven. He will come with angels and with a loud trumpet call. He's already taught this. Paul's just reiterating it. 1 Thessalonians 4 says at the end of verse 16 and in verse 17, And when that happens, when Jesus comes with the trumpet and the angels, the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive at this time, we who are left, will be caught up together with them, all the dead who have been raised, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. When Jesus returns... Everyone who was in Christ and who physically died will at that time rise. And everyone who is in Christ but but still alive will be changed, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Given those immortal, imperishable bodies and then caught up together with the dead who have been raised to meet the Lord in the clouds. Matthew 24, look at the end of verse 31 where Jesus says that His angels will gather His elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Look down at verse 40 and 41 of Matthew 24. During that time, two men will be in the field. One will be taken. One will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. One will be left. And the ones who are taken are believers. Still alive when Jesus returns, they'll be taken, but the unbelievers will be left in order to endure God's judgment when it is poured out at the second coming of His Son. And that's the same thing that Paul teaches in 1 Thessalonians. Look at chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians in verse 3. While people are saying there is peace and security, everything's fine, don't worry about eternity. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Paul compares Jesus' return to labor pains that come upon a pregnant woman. Jesus says, 
Matthew 24, look at it, verse 8, speaking of the wars and the famines and the earthquakes that we see going on around us in the world all the time, all of these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Same thing, right? They're teaching the same thing. Jesus says in verse 36 of Matthew 24, look at it. He says that no one knows when this is going to happen, when the, when the return of Christ will come and when He will gather the elect unto Himself and then pour out judgment on the unbelievers. Nobody knows. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven. Nor the Son, but the Father only. And in verse 43, He says, But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house to be broken into. What's he mean? No one knows when Jesus is going to return. So you'd better be ready as if it could be at any minute. No one knows. It will be when the unbelievers are least expecting it because they've been lulled to sleep spiritually by all of their worldliness and fleshliness. And so Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Verses 1 and 2, look at it. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brother, you have no need to have anything written for you because you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. It's the same teaching about the same event and what will happen when Jesus comes again. In 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 6, Paul says to believers, So then, let us, Christians, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Christians have got to stay alert. Christians have got to be ready for the second coming of Jesus. In Matthew 24, flipping again, verse 42, look at it. Jesus says, therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. In verse 44, Therefore you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. It's the same exact teaching about the same exact event, which according to Jesus in Matthew 24 is His coming. It's the second coming of Jesus. And what will happen when He comes? He will return from heaven. He will be accompanied by angels, including the archangel, with the loud blast of the sound of the trumpet of God. And when that happens, He will gather all believers who have died in the past and been raised and who are still living at the time. He will gather us all unto Himself. No one knows when this will happen. It will happen without warning. It will happen suddenly like a thief who comes in the night catching believers or unbelievers off guard. And, and, and then after gathering all of the believers into himself, judgment will fall on the unbelievers. Suddenly, like the pains of woman in labor. And so believers need to stay sober. Believers need to stay awake. Believers need to stay watchful. Which means pursuing holiness and love and lives that please God as we hope for this great coming of our Lord. Okay, we can be done with Matthew 24. Go back to 1 Thessalonians now. When Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 15, 
that he's declaring all of this by a word from the Lord, that's what he means. He means literally he's just telling them what Jesus had already told them back in Matthew 24 about the coming day of the Lord, the second coming of Jesus to gather his own unto his presence and to judge all of the wicked unbelievers of of the world in the holy wrath of God. Now, in Acts chapter 1, 40 days after Jesus had been raised from the dead, he spoke his last words to his disciples. And he called them to be his witnesses, right? To the world. And then, as they were watching with their physical eyes, they saw him in his physical body lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood beside them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come again in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He will return. And he will return in the same way that they saw him go. They saw him with their eyes, visibly. They saw him in his physical body, not just in some spiritual essence. And they saw him go on a cloud. And all of that is how he will return. Visibly in his physical person on a cloud. And not just any cloud. Like you can see out in the sky on a normal day. No, here you have to think about the cloud that led the Israelites through the wilderness in the book of Exodus. That cloud that was full of and manifesting the glory of God so that it appeared to be a a pillar of fire by night. That same Shekinah, that same glory cloud that came down onto Mount Sinai and caused the skies literally to split open as the glory of God was manifested in supernatural power and presence and splendor. That's what it will be like when Jesus returned, only amplified. Not just, he's not just going to come on an ordinary cloud, he's going to come on the cloud of God's glorious presence which will burst into this world with a power that no one who is alive on this earth when it happens has ever seen or imagined before. Verse 16 says that the Lord Himself will descend. They saw Him ascend up. They watched Him. They had their eyes up. He's going to descend. He's going to come back down. Now, some people have trouble figuring out how he's going to bodily descend in a way that's visible, but to everybody on the, the globe, right? Because if you're standing on one side and he comes, how, how? So they get a little caught up in that. And on the one hand, I think if you're worried too much about things like that, then you're worried about the, the wrong things. It, it's, it's beyond what you can imagine or comprehend, and you don't want to miss the point of the glory and the splendor and the, and the importance of it by getting fixated on the details. But on the other hand, think about this. In Revelation chapter 6, Jesus talks about His return and He reveals that when He returns, He is going to bring an end to this whole present created order, this whole cosmos. 
Peter talks about the same thing, right? In 2 Peter chapter 3. The day of the Lord, of His coming, will come like a thief. And then when it does, the heavens, he means the, the physical universe, the galaxies and all of that. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies, all the stars and suns and galaxies, they'll be burned up and dissolved. And the earth that we live on and the works that are done on it, the unrighteousness, they will all be exposed to this wrath of God that is going to incinerate the whole cosmic order. And then he says, of course, God will create a new heavens and a new earth, a new universe. Well, in Revelation 6 and verse 14, listen to how Jesus describes that same thing. What will happen to this present universe, this present created order, when Jesus returns and causes it to pass away with a roar? It says, at that point, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. That's the picture that John is given of what it will seem like. A scroll that is unrolled. That's our current universe. It's been opened up and unrolled and that's what we know is reality. And then it gets, it gets split down the middle and each end goes and rolls back up. That's how Jesus describes it in Revelation 6.14. You could picture it very similarly by thinking of a, a curtain on a, a stage during a play. And after the play was finished, the curtain gets pulled back from both sides so that you can see what's behind it, all of the actors and maybe the orchestra or whatever's back there. That's what will happen, Jesus says, when He returns. The present reality as we know it will be rolled up from the ends, peeled back so that it disappears and reveals the heavenly dimension that has been hidden where Jesus, where, where God dwells. So it's not just going to be about one little sphere and, and your vantage point from it. it. It's the whole cosmic order being rolled away. And I think that's the kind of imagery that Paul is talking about here. When Jesus appears, it will be because the present physical reality will be ripped away and rolled up so that Jesus becomes manifest to every eye throughout the whole earth. G.K. Beale says, Just as one can lay flat a map of the whole world and see it all at one glance, so Christ will appear to behold all humanity at one glance, and they will all be able to behold Him. And, Paul says, He won't just be seen by all when He returns. He'll be, he'll be heard. He will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. In the book of Exodus, in chapter 19, when God came down onto Mount Sinai, remember the whole mountain shook violently, and it says that the sound of a trumpet grew louder and louder, and that God spoke, and that His voice was like the sound of many thunders. Now, there wasn't actually some guy standing up on Mount Sinai with a brass trumpet blowing it in Exodus 19 what they heard could be compared to the sound of a trumpet 
growing louder and louder, but it was emanating from heaven itself. It was coming from the throne of God. Whatever it is that they heard and that we'll hear when Jesus comes again, it will come from heaven itself and it will be absolutely unlike any trumpet blast that anybody has ever heard and it will resonate throughout the entire universe. And it will be announcing the power and the authority and the presence of the King of all kings as the skies get rolled back like a scroll to reveal Him in all of His holiness and splendor and glory. And when that happens, Jesus says in Matthew 24, that will be terrifying to all and every unbeliever in this world. Every worshiper of false gods, every denier of Christ, every atheist, everyone who loves himself more than he loves God, everyone who loves this world or money more than he loves God, everyone who is consumed with the cares and the things of this world will be absolutely horrified when this world is ripped open and rolled up and dissolved, when it's all peeled away and Christ appears in all of His undeniable glory and they cannot say, I don't believe in Him anymore. And when the archangel shouts and when the trumpet blasts from the throne of God, it will be horrifying to them because in that moment they will know that they have spent their whole lives denying and rejecting the Son of God and chasing after idols and lies instead of honoring Him and worshiping His creation, which is now getting shredded to pieces, instead of worshiping Him who is their Creator. When He shreds it all away, it will strike a fear into them unlike they've ever, ever known. And you can understand why. But for all of those who love Him, who have placed their faith and trust in Him, who have been redeemed, who have been reborn of Him, who have lived through all of the hellish trials and afflictions of this world that is cursed by sin, fixing their eyes on Him finally. Can you imagine seeing it? Hoping in Him. Knowing that your life is hid with God in Him who now your eyes are beholding. Having lived for the great hope of His promised return, that day when He pulls the curtain back, pulls the skies apart, manifests His glory for every eye to see, when He appears, that will be the greatest day imaginable. Literally, we got up to the top of those waterfalls and I stood on that bridge looking down over that valley and those waterfalls and I couldn't even think about how sore my feet were. It was so gorgeous. Imagine when Jesus appears, you won't think about all of the pain that you've endured in this world. His glory will transcend it all by infinite measure. And you will be so captivated and caught up. And you will be with Him and your hope will be realized. Keep your hope fixed on Him. It will be the greatest day imaginable. The dead in Christ, all of those believers who have died, who have fallen asleep, they will rise when He appears. Not just like zombies coming up out of their graves. Paul explains in the text we looked at last week, to be raised means to be changed. It means to be transformed. It means to, to be made immortal, to be made imperishable. It means to be made physically fit for eternity in the un 
destructible, unshakable new heavens and new earth. That's a new creation where there won't be any sin, there, there won't be any curse, there won't be any death, there won't be any decay, only perfection. And, and our bodies have to be made ready for that. And Paul, Paul makes that clear. We saw these verses last week. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Jesus will come before some Christians die while some Christians are still alive. But we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound. And the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed when Christ comes. The dead will be raised. We will all be changed. Our bodies made immortal, imperishable, perfected, glorified, made bodily fit for that eternal perfection of the new heavens and the new earth where there is no decay, where there is no loss, where there is no pain. What will we look like? Will we look like what we look like now? Will we recognize one another according to some semblance of our current form? I think so, but I don't know. What age will we look like? I don't know. It doesn't tell us. But we will be perfect. That's all you need to know. In every way, along with the rest of the new universe where we will dwell forever. And, And the certainty of it is as sure as Jesus was raised. There's... If you believe that, you must believe that this is coming. That this is your hope. Because Jesus defeated death, everyone who belongs to Him must and will live forever in this way. Just keep thinking about that every single day. That your back hurts. That your knees hurt. That your heart doesn't work right. That you live in unimaginable pain. That you witness the pain of others and have to endure their deaths. Just realize Jesus is coming. And realize what's coming with Him. This is good, strong, solid, true hope. And as powerful as it is, right, of what will be and where will be when Jesus comes, the best aspect of the great hope, of course, is who we will be with. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. That's the greatest hope of all. That's the hope that will give us courage and strength to strive and to run with endurance and to live in growing holiness and love and to please the Lord with every aspect of our lives, even as pilgrims here. This is the hope that gives us the strength to run and to finish the race well. Not to just lay down on the track and go, I'm done, I don't want to do it anymore. Keep running. Keep hiking up that trail to the top of the falls because Jesus is there. And you will forever be with the Lord. Here is the hope that makes every affliction in our lives seem Literally like a momentary light affliction in comparison. This is the hope that helps us face the pain in even death with confident assurance. The Lamb of God who was slain and who was raised and who lives evermore is our Lord, is our Savior, is our God, is our Good Shepherd. 
He came for us when we were lost. He sought us when we were astray. He saved us. He loved us to the uttermost. He laid down His life for us. He defeated death for us. He rose from the grave and lives forevermore. He is the great I Am. He is right now enthroned in heavenly glory and power and majesty. He is our refuge. He is our shelter. He is our high tower. He is our high priest. He is our intercessor. He is our life. He is with us now in spirit and in power. And He will be with us physically, bodily, face to face. In my flesh shall I see God forever. Does it, is it worth it? Can you keep hiking? A few more steps. One foot in front of the other. I know it hurts. But you will forever be with the Lord. Oh Lord, haste the day when my face shall be sight and the, the skies be rolled back like a scroll. The trump will resound and the Lord will descend. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh my soul. Amen? Uh, let's pray and sing. Our God and our Father, will you give us hope to keep on striving, to keep on climbing, to keep on running, to keep on growing and thriving in holiness, Father. We need this hope because we are weak and we are sore and we are tired and we are grieved in this world. But Father, your hope is greater than all of it. And we pray, give us confident certainty in this hope of the coming of Christ and what is coming with Him and what will be as we will be with Him for endless days. And Father, as You give us that hope, help, us to, help, it to, help it to fuel a thriving holiness in us and a growing love for one another and for this lost world because we want everyone to know this hope. And so help us to keep on striving, keep on running, Keep on proclaiming this gospel to this dying world and pleading with them to know this hope of Christ, to abandon their hope that is anchored to this world, to repent of their sin, and to cast themselves on the mercies of Christ who will come and gather them unto Himself if they will but come to Him. And so, Father, strengthen Your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.